On today's episode of Making Sense of Science, I had a chance to speak with Shai Afradi, a physician and professor in the schools of medicine and neuroscience at Tel Aviv University. Afradi also directs the Seagal Center for Hyperbaric Medicine and Research. And our conversation in this episode focuses on the potential health benefits of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. His studies point to a connection between using hyperbaric chambers and improvements with a range of health problems, such as long COVID, strokes, and traumatic brain injuries. In addition, Afradi has an early line of research suggesting that hyperbaric oxygen therapy could help protect against cognitive decline in healthy people, and perhaps even slow down the overall aging process. We talk about what's going on in the body when people use hyperbaric oxygen therapy that could possibly lead to these transformative benefits for patients, many of whom had been searching for treatments previously and come up empty. We also discuss exactly where Afradi is with this research, both what his studies have shown and the great deal of additional research that needs to be done before the healthcare system can and should fully embrace hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and one day maybe even declare that we found an oxygen fountain of youth. We talk about why you can't just go on Amazon and buy something that says hyperbaric. You've got to use the real version of the chamber correctly under the supervision of a knowledgeable physician. I also ask Afradi what we know about the short-term and long-term risks of using the right kind of chambers on a regular basis, and accessibility to people without a lot of excess cash to spend on their health, especially as Afradi is already rolling this therapy out in specialized clinics in places like the Village's Retirement Community in Florida. I'm Matt Fuchs, and this is Making Sense of Science. Hello, Dr. Afradi. It's terrific to have you on the Leaps.org Making Sense of Science podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm happy to be with you. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to speak with you about your work. It seems to have therapeutic potential that could be really promising. And I'd love to start very generally with a description of your work and the medical problems that you're seeking to address through hyperbaric oxygen therapy? If we need to start in general, uh, you know, the brain is is a very interesting tissue. Uh, We can speak about the brain in a mystic fashion. We can say cognitive, we can say personality, but the end of the day, the brain is a tissue. And when I was in medical school, I was taught that that neurons or brain tissue cannot be regenerated. That's that's how I started. And because of that, till recent years, all the medication and drugs that were developed were not aiming for rejuvenation of damaged brain tissue, but rather were aiming to neurotransmitters to see how we can deal with the symptoms and how we can handle symptoms by targeting specific enzyme or specific neurotransmitter. In, I can say in the last 10 years, it become to us, when I'm saying us, I'm saying homo sapiens and science, that actually we, the brain is changing all the time. And, and tissue, damaged tissue in the brain can be regenerated, can be repaired, can actually repair, like any other wounds that we have in other parts of the body meaning we have in the brain stem cells. We call them neuronal stem cells. These are the cells that can differentiate into the missing tissue and replace the damaged cells. We can induce new blood vessels in the brain. We can induce new glial cells in the brain. 
We have a lymphatic system that can take the garbage out, something that in the past we didn't thought, we call it in the brain lymphatic system. So now there is a paradigm, paradigm shift between targeting symptoms or trying to handle the symptoms to actually repair, to actually regeneration of the damaged brain tissue. And this is, this is a change in the way we approach. And this is a change also with the results that we expect from the treatment. So what we are doing is related to that. And with regard to that, we, are, we were thinking how we, can, how we can induce this repair mechanism in the brain how we can induce the neuronal stem cells to proliferate, how we can induce new blood vessels to generate. And for that, we use what we call the hyperoxic epoxic paradox by using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But this is not the classical hyperbaric oxygen therapy that many in the US are familiar with, which is sacks full of air or, or tube that people go inside. The, the paradigm over here is that you're going into, into a suite. You compress the suite with air, not with oxygen. And then while inside, we can give the 100% oxygen by mask, increasing the oxygen to very high level, and then doing a fast decline by, for example, taking the mask off. This decline from very high back to the normal is being interpreted by the body at the cellular level as hypoxia, as lack of oxygen. And this triggers all the repair mechanism. That triggers neuronal stem cells proliferation. That triggers building of new blood vessels in the brain. And that can actually lead the process or initiate the process that we are aiming, which is actually repair of damaged brain tissue and not only handling with the symptoms. So this is, this is what we are doing. And when we understand that, we were thinking which kind of wounds are suitable for this kind of treatment, just like we are looking at wounds in the periphery, in the leg, in the hand, whatever it is. And today with the sophisticated brain imaging and the high-resolution brain imaging that we have in our hands, we can actually define which is the wound that is suitable for that treatment. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. Um, that's perfect, actually. And I, I have a, a bunch of follow-up questions that I want to ask about the treatment and the research that you're doing to learn how it can benefit people um, with a number of different conditions. Um, but uh, often on this podcast, I like to ask about my guests sort of origin story. Uh, and I know that you're a nephrologist. And so I'm very curious how you ended up getting involved in the study of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Was this something that uh, just sort of piqued your interest and you made moves to get involved? Or how did you, uh, how did you get involved in this? As you know, everything is happening by mistake. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how it is. So it's actually started, I was investigating a medical condition, we call it malignant hypertension. What is malignant hypertension? This is a condition where the blood pressure is abruptly going high, and then different tissue in our body are, are dying. 
brain tissue is being damaged, the kidneys are being damaged, the eyes. Okay, this is malignant. So that's what was an interest for me to study that and to understand what is the biological cascade that culminate in damage to this brain and kidney kidney cells. In order to do that, I, I wanted to build a simulator or that I can actually induce the pressure on, on the cells. So I was thinking, okay, Shai, you have an idea, you want to build a simulator, but, but how the hell can you do that? Okay. So then I realized that we have a very small unit in our hospital with, with a small chamber and there are technicians over there. And I said, I will go to the technician and, and get their advice. How can I build something like that to my lab? And, and that's how I started to see what hyperbaric medicine is through the technicians. And then I built the chamber. I did a simulator of malignant hypertension. Based on that simulator, there's a lot of insight today. What is the biological cascade that happened during malignant hypertension? I was able to evaluate all the biological cascade of that. It was very nice. And now we understand better malignant hypertension. So how can I get to the chamber? In one of the days when I needed to do the experiment, and I prepared all the setting and preparing the setting, it's, you know, it's a month that you grow the cells and all of that. Then the technician told me, we are not coming. We, we cannot come. I said, what, what do you mean we cannot count? I want all the month I prepared this, this study. And they told me they have a problem with the young lady, type 1 diabetes, who's going to lose, to lose the leg because there is abnormality that happened over there. Instead of increasing the oxygen in the leg, the oxygen is declining, declining when she's going into the chamber. And, and they told me they have to try again before doing amputation. I said, okay, that's, that's the problem. I can solve it. I can solve it with, with a certain supplement that she can take, and that will prevent the vasoconstriction that they have. She had contraction of the blood vessels. And indeed it happened. And what happened from that point on, every time there was a problem in the chamber, they called me and asked my advice. And from time to time, I had, I had the right answer. So that's how I got involved. I'm also a diver. I enjoy diving. So I'm also a diving physician. And something like 20 years ago, uh, the CEO of the hospital came to me and he told me, Shai, I want you to be in South also on the chamber, on the hyperbaric chamber. I said, no way, no way. I'm too busy with nephrology and internal medicine. I just built up a new research unit. I have a lot of research on my, on my table. I, I don't have the time. And, and he heard me. And a month afterwards, he came to me and told me, Shai, I'm closing, the, I'm closing the hyperbaric chamber. I told him, you cannot close it. Where the poor people will go. Okay, people with diving existence, with diabetic food, with all of that said, watch me, I'm doing that. And then I told him the words that start with F and I said, okay, leave it open, I will be in charge. And this is, this is how it all, it all started. And I have noticed when I started to be in charge of the chamber that some of the people that are coming with diabetic wounds who had also stroke in the past, you know, that many of those patients have in addition 
to peripheral wounds have also the strokes in the brain. I have noticed three cases in which the patient came to treat the wound in the leg, but they have unexpected neurological improvement. One of them was another young lady with type 1 diabetic. She came on a wheelchair and the wound in the leg was cured, but, but she, she started walking, okay? And then I, there was the second case, and then was the third case. And I believe that if you have a chance to do something good and you are not doing that, it's just like doing something bad. And if you are doing something bad, the universe will hit you. And I'm, I'm a chicken, I'm afraid. So once I saw that, I said, okay, I will do a study. And the goal of the first study that I did was to prove that actually neurons cannot, cannot be regenerated. And such improvements are not possible. And I said, I will do that. I will clean my conscience and I can continue with the rest of the stuff that I'm doing. Unfortunately, I got the opposite results. Neurons <laughs> can regenerate and that became a big, big deal. And you're personally a diver. Did I hear that right? So you, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm also you, a diver. I b- believe that one of the benefits of hyperbaric oxygen therapy can be for people who are experiencing ear and sinus pain, middle ear injuries. Is this something that maybe, have you used hyperbaric oxygen therapy yourself if you're cons- uh, experiencing any of these symptoms or otherwise, do you, do you use HBOT? There are, when, when we are speaking, there is diving medicine and there is hyperbaric medicine, okay? The only common thing for those two things is that you are playing with pressure and gases. That's the only thing that is similar, okay? When we are dealing with diving medicine, we are dealing in how deep and how much time we can stay in in this environment before getting toxic effects, okay? Gotcha. When we are dealing with hyperbaric medicine, we are thinking totally the opposite. What is the minimal dose that is needed in order to get beneficial effect with regard to regeneration? So these are these are the two extremities. In the one you are dealing with toxicity, okay? How far you can go before you will get toxicity and how do you handle the toxicity? On the other hand, which is hyperbaric medicine, is what is the minimal effective dose? Okay, how can we induce regenerative process like we just spoke now? How can we induce stem cells? How can we induce regeneration? How can we induce generation of new blood vessels? So these are two different, totally different scenarios. I got you now. Thank you for clarifying that. That's helpful. I didn't understand that. Um, Well, speaking of the regeneration uh, track of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you've led some fascinating research on the potential for this therapy to help people with long COVID that I'd like to ask you about. What is the connection between hyperbaric oxygen therapy and long COVID? What does your research show? And what studies are you looking to do now um, to help show the role that hyperbaric oxygen therapy can play as a potential treatment for long COVID? So again, also in this case, everything happened by mistake, yeah? So so how this this started? No, something like two and a half years ago, we have found, and I'm saying we, I'm speaking about the world, 
we have found ourselves dealing with an epidemic that we didn't know exactly what's going on. Uh, so many, many researchers and scientists were obliged or asked to get into that, that topic. So my research group responsibility as part of, of the team in Israel who, who were supposed to give some answers of what should we do and how we do and what we are dealing with, our group took the responsibility to investigate the immune system. Okay, the response of the new system. On those days, nobody know what's happening in our body. So we were the first, one of the first to map how the immune system reacts, which antibodies are going up, at what time they are going up, when they are going down, which kits should we use in order to detect COVID, in order to detect that somebody had infection. All the routine that there is today, at those days, nobody knew what to do. It seems like a long history, but it's not so far ago. It's only two and a half years ago. And, and that was our responsibility, our group responsibility. And indeed, as you know, in Israel, we were working very fast. We know how to deal catastrophe and to handle it in a fast way. And, and many of the knowledge that was gathered in Israel, at least part of it was done by our group. Now, in those studies when we evaluate the immune system, we evaluate it also for the long term because we wanted to know for how long the memory of the immune system of people who were infected can hold. And for that, we, we did a long-term evaluation, meaning six months, one year after the acute infection. And, and people who had COVID, whether mild or severe or moderate COVID, were follow-up by us. Again, the main follow-up was on the immune system. But we have noticed that many of the patients that were part of this study, meaning monitoring the immune system, have, have symptoms that persist more than three months, more than six months after the acute infection, and relatively previously healthy population who not necessarily had severe infection, who were not necessarily hospitalized. And, and when we saw that, I said, oh my God, what's going on? This is, this is more than expected. We, have, we are dealing with something that is totally else. And that's why I decided, when I'm saying I decided it's me and my research group, I have a privilege to have a significant research team under my supervision. And I decided to take my resources and do a research on something that was unknown at that time. Okay, we call it long COVID. <laughs> Happened to be that, that this, this, this phrase persists. And our definition was that we are taking people who have persistent symptoms more than three months after the acute insult, at the beginning, we were focusing on cognitive decline or brain-related symptoms, which was totally unexpected. And, you know, when I started it, all my fellows and my friends and comet told me, Shai, are you crazy? There's nothing here. It's because of the psychological condition. People are not working. People are at lockdown. It's all psychological. And at that time, I said, no, 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 I think there's something more. And I'm, I'm used that people call me crazy. You know, that's part of the things that I'm doing. Uh, 
And that's, that's how we started it. Taking two years fast forward to conclude what we know today. First of all, today there is a accepted definition of, we call it long COVID condition by the WHO. Luckily, the definition that we have used two years ago is actually the definition that is being used today by the WHO, meaning it's people that have persistent symptoms more than three months after the acute insult. Persist, the symptoms should persist constantly for more than two months without other explanation to it. So what's going on? What do we know today? Today, we understand that with regard to the brain, and many of the symptoms are related to cognitive decline, memory decline, attention, information processing speed, executive function, your ability to do multitasking. And we also have symptoms that are related to anxiety, okay, like post-traumatic stress disorder, but without the trauma because they didn't have any trauma. Depression. The most common symptoms is fatigue, mental fatigue, okay? So, so what's going on? Why does it happen? Today, we understand that the virus can penetrate the brain through two main roads. One access is through a cribriform plate. This is the part of the bone that is here above our nose. It's a penetrated bone. That's how we can sense the world that surrounds us. That's how we can smell. That's how we can understand what's going on around. So the virus can penetrate through this bone, bind to the neurons in the frontal lobe, inject the genetic material into the neurons, and cause malfunction of the neurons. This is one thing. In addition to that, the virus can bind to the glia cells. The glia cells are the supporting cells of the, of the whole brain tissue. They're supposed to keep the steady state that enable the performance of the brain. There is a kind of receptor, ACE2 receptor on the glial cell for which the virus can, can bind, and it's causing gliosis, inflammation of the glial cells. This is the second thing. The other access to the brain is through the bloodstream. <clears throat> for the unfortunate patient in whom the virus is penetrating the bloodstream, the virus, once it's in the blood vessels, can bind to the same ACE2 receptor that we have on the endothelial cell. These are the cells that are surrounding the blood vessels. And it can activate the coagulation system, causing clots, blood clots. And we see young people healthy in the past, before the COVID, who had multiple tiny strokes in the brain, which is unbelievable. So there is a wound that we can see in the brain. We can demonstrate this brain tissue. And since we are dealing with wounds, we said, okay, this kind of wounds, we know how to treat. For that, we have the hyperoxic epoxy paradox, this, the unique protocol that we are using with the chamber. And that's when we started the, the study, which is the first of its kind. We do it a prospective randomized control, sham control study, meaning half of the patients were getting the treatment, half were going into the chamber, but unfortunately we had to give them only air or 
mimic the treatment. I'm saying, unfortunately, because this is two months that they have to go to the chamber every day for two hours. And, and we did all the brain imaging before, the brain imaging after. Uh, we did evaluation of the symptoms of the cognitive function, all computerized. We did also evaluation of the heart, cardiac function. I can, can tell you some glimpses because this study wasn't published yet. It's going to be published soon. And we were able to demonstrate, first of all, the bad news is that unfortunately the placebo group doesn't, didn't have significant improvement. People got used to their limitation, okay? meaning they, they are adjusting their life according to the limitation. What do I mean by that? You know, they are feeling fatigued, so they are going to sleep during the days, things that in the past they couldn't do. They answering 10 emails per day instead of 100 emailing per day. They are writing everything down. Okay, so it's not that they were improving, they were adjusting to their new condition, which is unfortunate, but this, this is what happened. So this is the bad news. The good news is that with the treatment that we have, for the first time, we are able to demonstrate in a well-controlled study that there is a good effective treatment for what we call long COVID condition. We can demonstrate the recovery of the damaged brain tissue in the brain. And I think that in the upcoming months, there's going to be another study on functional MRI that we evaluate the networks in the brain and demonstrate how that improves. So I think it's going to be published quite soon. And we can see the recovery of the wounds in the brain. And in correlation with that, we see the clinical improvement, which is a huge thing. Now, now COVID is a bad thing. Definitely post-COVID, this is the worst that happened because of the COVID, because these symptoms persist. But I always said that in bad things, there are also good things. And the good things is now that we have the treatment is that we can learn a lot about the brain. And we are learning a lot. You know, we have people who are fully healthy. A tiny virus is penetrating the brain, causes those symptoms. We are improving their symptoms. And then we can learn which part of the brain is responsible for what. We can do analysis of the network. And many of the things that we used to think in the past that are idiopathic, that we don't know, you know, people say shit happens. Suddenly somebody had depression. Somebody, somebody had early dementia or cognitive decline. Somebody, somebody have huge fatigue. Now we can see that there is actually a cause. So we can see the post-COVID as a cause, but it might be possible that also things in the past that we used to say that they are idiopathic may be related to some other virus or other insult or other whatever it is. And maybe there is a chance also for that. Because if COVID wouldn't happen in the magnitude that it happened, there is no chance in the world that people who are dealing with physiology like me will get into that and think at the virus as, as, as a cause for symptoms that doesn't seem related to a simple cold, okay? So that's, that's the amazing thing about it. 
Yeah, no, the, the research um, is, is amazing and it definitely uh, is promising. I'm curious, are there other researchers who are looking to replicate these findings or, you know, are, are maybe you looking to do um, larger studies to help confirm the benefits? And I, I would also like to maybe like package into that question what we know about the best regimen for hyperbaric oxygen therapy Given that these, um, this is a relatively new line of research, I mean, it seems possible that there might be other regimens to try, maybe like different dosage, different, um, you know, the, the regularity with which people are are doing this treatment um, could could be varied to see what types of uh, benefits are. Maybe people don't need to be in the chamber um, as frequently, or maybe they do, or maybe it would be helpful for them to be uh, receive more of the treatment. Are, are there, uh, is there additional research going on to sort of confirm the benefits, the effectiveness, and the best approach? We always want more data. And I can add questions to your questions. I'm sure you could. And every time we have more insight, we want more data. That's That's how the world is. So two things. First of all, at each time point, as a physician, the main difference, I'm not only a scientist, I'm also a physician, okay? So as a scientist, I always do additional studies, additional research. I want to learn more different protocol, different regimes, uh, to learn more about the brain, which part related to what, etc., etc. This is my head as, as a scientist. As a physician, this is another another issue, you're sitting in front of the patient who is suffering and you need to do whatever you can based on the data available today in order to help him. Today, okay, you need to tell him what he should do today. So these are two lines that go in simultaneously. So until we have finished that study, uh, we had the legitimacy not to treat, okay, and do only only research. But once we have the results from this study, and additional articles are going to come up soon, we don't have the legitimacy now only to do research, but we also need to address and treat patients because the results are very good, and you need to give that option to the patient. So there are... Two, two lines that are going, we are still continuing to learn, to study, and I'm saying again, this is a huge opportunity for us to understand better how the system is working. For example, some of the patients have dysfunction of the autonomic system, which is extremely excited for somebody like me, okay? Meaning they have suddenly fast heart rate, low heart rate, Okay, suddenly dizziness when they're standing up, sitting down, flashing, things like that. For me, it's amazing because I can study the part of the brain that is related to that. Uh, and, and many other tissue, it's, it's, I don't want to say it because it may not sound good, but, but this is a great play yard for me, okay, to play around and to study and to learn. So I'm playing with that. That's one hand. On the other hand, I have the obligation as a physician who owe to help people, to help people with whatever we have now. 
And, and now we are treating patient because it's actually working and we can actually eat, treat the patient. It's not a magic. It's not that you're coming one time to the treatment and then everything is cured. It's not like that. Before making a decision whether a specific patient is suitable for the treatment, yes or not, you have to go through a very de- in-depth evaluation, looking at the brain with high-resolution MRI, perfusion MRI, functional MRI, doing the cognitive evaluation, physical performance evaluation, and only based on this, first, we need to understand if we are dealing with post-COVID and something or something else, because it might be possible it's something else. And if it's post-COVID, whether we see the specific tissue that we can help. And only then, if we think we can help, then the patient is suitable for the treatment. Okay, yeah. but so that's 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 a process. It has to be a process that is being led by professional who knows what they are doing. Okay, it's not yeah. that everybody who have cognitive decline is post COVID. It doesn't work that way. And I do want to get to the important distinction I've heard you make in other conversations between what you're doing as a trained physician and uh, some of these spas and products that can be bought on Amazon. Uh, but first, I, I do want um, to touch a little bit more on the mechanism in play here, just so people understand the, uh, and you did talk about this a few minutes ago, uh, the hypoxia that's happening at the cellular level I'm also, I'm curious if you could talk about the mechanism in the context of the different parts of the body that are affected. You, you referenced some of your research that I, I take it has already been done, but the results are forthcoming when it comes to regeneration in the heart. Um, but it's overall, it seems like there is a focus of your research on neurons and the brain. And so I wonder if you could say something generally about the mechanism, the reason that hyperbaric oxygen therapy seems to be working for people, but also how it relates specifically to the brain versus other parts of the body. Is it as relevant to other parts of the body as it is to, um, you know, things that are happening in the brain? So first of all, it's good that you mention all the spa and all the things that people buy on Amazon, the sacks and the tube, because this is highly important because especially in the US, it's unbelievable what's going on, okay? So there's a lot of folks going around. People are putting my name on it, my face on it. I saw a clinic in New York who had my face on it. We are giving a fatty protocol and then you go into a tube. This is not it, okay? Absolutely not it. Okay, Uh, so for the sake of this conversation, it's a completely different protocol. We will call it the hyperoxic hypoxic paradox protocol. Okay, it can happen only in multiplace. Okay, people are going into multiplace, it's just like an airplane. Okay, people can go, for example, in the US, the biggest hyperbarics and most advanced center is in Florida the Aviv Clinic in Florida. So people can go online and see the picture, picture how it looks, okay? It's like a first class in an airplane. You see me sitting inside. We are compressing the, the suite, the chamber with air, 
not with the oxygen, okay? Going into two atmospheres, one atmosphere above sea level, and when you are at that pressure, then you get the oxygen by mask. By doing so, the amount of oxygen in the blood is increasing from 100 mercuries to around 1,500 mercuries. This increase at this level of pressure, the amount of the dissolved oxygen in the blood, and in the blood we have oxygen that is being dissolved or bind to the red blood cells. The amount of the dissolved oxygen in the blood is sufficient for all the energy demand of the body. Meaning oxygen can go even to location when the red blood cells cannot go, if we have injury to blood vessels, for example. Okay? This is one thing. Then, based on a predefined protocol, we ask the people to take the mask off. What happens when they are taking the mask off? The oxygen is declining from very high back to the normal. This decline, very high back to the normal, is being interpreted by the body at the cellular level as hypoxia as lack of oxygen, even though we have extra oxygen. So the body starts to initiate all the things that happen during hypoxia in hyperoxy condition without the hazardous effect of hypoxia. Stem cells proliferation, generation of new blood vessels, okay, angiogenesis, neurogenesis, and with each session, the amount of stem cells are going up. And then after 20 sessions or so, we have huge amount of stem cells flying all over, but we need to give them time to walk. That's why you have to continue with the treatment. It's not a magic. It's not injection of stem cells. They need to go up and they need to function. They need to walk. So that's, that's the system. Our main focus is on the brain, but as you said, it's, it's happened not only in the brain. It happens also in other parts of the body. Our focus is on the brain because the brain is the most challenging organ with regard to repair mechanism in our body. I think that the brain is also the most important thing, but people can argue about that. Uh, some of my friends think on, on another organ as, as the most important in our body, but that's, but that's to discuss. But the brain is important, definitely. And of course, it's happened in other parts of the body, and we can see that if you have wound in the leg, you can use the same mechanism for better repairment of the wound in the leg. If you have radiation injury, then you can use it also for that. So that's that's the process. That's how it happens. So it's a defined protocol. I'm saying it very easy now, but it's almost 20 years of research, okay, uh, to understand exactly how to go up and down and how to optimize it and to go from efficacy to, from toxicity to efficacy and all the things we discussed before. But that's the protocol. It's a process. And during that treatment, if you are not part of the clinical study, we want to take advantage of this time in order to target the stem cells to whatever we want. If it's a clinical study, then that's the only treatment. But if, for example, you will go to the Aviv clinic, we will see the exact area in the brain that we want the stem cells to go there. 
And when you will be in the suite, in the chamber, you will have, there is a tablet inside and you have special mission that you need to do in order to shift the stem cell to the regions that we want, okay? And if you have a physical things that we want to overcome, then immediately when you're out, we will challenge that. So more stem cells will go to that. So we will do the best of whatever is known per specific patient, client, individual in order to get the maximum for his need. And and some of the people who are using hyperbaric oxygen therapy, some of your other research has shown that it can have perhaps benefits for optimal health, longevity, um, staving off cognitive decline, perhaps. And so I wanted to dig into that a little bit. And I, the research that I saw that was published in the journal Aging had some what seemed like remarkable results with participants' telomeres being lengthened up to 38% while senescent cells saw a decrease of up to 37%. So, I mean, this would seem to be having effects throughout the body. Um, and I don't know um, what indications um, were followed to, in order to measure uh, th- those impacts on, on people's bodies through this treatment. But I, I guess I'm curious to dig into that a little bit with the measures that you saw and what you are interpreting them to mean. Because I know that, you know, some of these metrics like telomeres, I think that there's been some mixed research on the relevance of telomeres as a uh, a, a metric to, to show biological age. I wondered if you have any plans maybe to um, use have people use hyperbaric oxygen therapy and then measure their epigenetic biological age, which I, I know also has mixed <laughs> research when it comes to, uh, you know, the extent to which it shows someone's biological age, but um, fascinating research. And I wondered if, if you could talk about sort of the significance of this, those findings and what we can really um, interpret them to mean at, at this point. I can speak about it for days. It's definitely a separate podcast by itself, but I will say a couple of words. We refer to aging as a disease, okay? We are not treating aging, we are treating a tissue. Unfortunately, a long age, things in our body are going down. We have what we call degenerative effects, just like a car, okay? If you will buy a car, the first year, can be good. And 10 years or 20 years after, you know, the tubes are not the way that they used to be. If you're going into a house, also the, the pipes in the house are not the same pipes when you went in. You have the coroiza, the occlusion of the pipes, the same happen in our body. We call it atherosclerosis. And once you have this occlusion, then you have a tissue that is not getting sufficient oxygen. If it's occlusion of a large blood vessel, you will call it stroke. If it's small blood vessels, then your cognitive is declining. If it's in the heart, you will call it myocardial infarction. If it's small blood vessels, you will call it myocardial dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we are not treating longevity. We are treating tissues. And 
repairments of tissue that were degraded along the years. Okay? So for us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. If the damage was caused by what we call age-related functional decline, occlusion of the blood vessels, the small blood vessels because of atherosclerosis, or if this occlusion of small blood vessels happened because of, of a tiny virus that penetrates into your bloodstream and activate the coagulation system in a fast way. At the end of the day, you have occlusion and you have an injured tissue. So that's to speak about the perspective. Now, going into aging, when we are going into something and you want to treat something, you need to be able to measure it. Because if you cannot measure it, you cannot, you cannot treat it. Okay? You cannot treat blood pressure unless you're measuring the blood pressure. And the general statistic is less relevant when you're speaking about uh, sitting in front of, of a friend, a client, a patient, and you want to discuss the specific with him. So we have a new definition. We call it biological aging. Because the chronological aging, the time that elapsed from the day that we were born until that time, we cannot change yet, okay? So we have biological aging. So what is biological aging? Biological aging is the sum of two things. Physiological aging, the way the different organs in our body are functioning, brain, heart, sexual function, physical function, cardiac function, lung function. We can measure all of this, and that will be the physiological aging. And on the other hand, we have the biological aging, which is, you know, we, you spoke about senescent cells. These are the aging non-functioning cell, which is a terrible thing by itself at the cellular level. And part of this is the telomere, or which genes are being, being and that can be measured also. And this is what we call genomic aging. So the sum of the genomic aging and the physiological aging, this is the biological aging. So this is a whole topic by itself, and we are doing probably one of the most comprehensive studies ever done till now on, on the biology of aging or how we can reverse the biological age, okay? We can actually reverse it. At the beginning, we were aiming to slow it down, but now we can see that it can actually be reversed, which is a extremely excited by itself. This is a study that you're doing now involving hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yeah, and other stuff also. We are evaluating other issues, but with the certain protocol that we were using for the first time in humans, we were able to demonstrate not only improving brain functionality, sexual functionality, okay, but also to improve the genomic aging, at the genomic age, reducing senescent cell, increasing telomere. For the first time in humans, we were able to demonstrate telomere elongation, which is, which is huge by itself. Uh, and that brings a lot of hope to that topic. And when there is a hope, there's a lot of young scientists that are coming in and want to dedicate their career for that. So that's do good by, by itself. So that's that's with regard to that. But again, I can speak about it for days. This is a long topic. What do we do with that? That's fascinating. Are, are people starting to use hyperbaric oxygen therapy based on some of these results for the purposes that are more related to biological age? Or are you focusing these treatments more on 
people who have like medical issues like traumatic brain uh, injuries or dementia or, or that is, is that like the vast majority of people who are actually using hyperbaric therapy at, at these clinics, like you mentioned, the Aviv Clinic in Florida? In the Aviv Clinic, or generally speaking, you know, aging is not defined today as a disease. Not yet, okay? Because we are saying to people, you are, you know, your cognitive is not so good, your functionality is not so good, but you are according to your age. So if you are according to the average to your age, then, then that's okay, classical medicine. But nobody wants to be according to his age. <laughs> okay, I, I haven't met somebody who wants to be according to his age. Only people who got severe injury, their vision is to get back to the average. But people who didn't have acute insult, I don't want to be according to my age. I, you want to function the best you can. So being above the average to your age, this is not defined disease today. This is what we call enhanced medicine. But I always say that my job as the physician is to understand what is your physiological wish. Once I understand what your physiological wish is, I need to see if I can achieve it. If I can achieve this physiological wish based on the science that is available today, then, then, then I have a green light to move forward. And, and you can do that in a VIV clinic uh, after being well evaluated, seeing your DNA, seeing your brain, seeing your functionality. Now, if, for example, you will want to be somebody like me who wants to be double the height that I'm in to, today or to change my eye to blue eyes, it will probably not happen. So this kind of biological wish I cannot, I cannot accomplish. But if the biological wish makes sense, based on the evaluation that you did and the biological understanding and the science that we have today, then we will move forward and try to, to achieve it. Okay, so that's, that's the new approach. Did you say that you're um, using hyperbaric oxygen therapy in combination with some other things related to anti-aging? I just wanted to make sure I heard Don't that. Don't say anti-aging, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> We are not anti-anything. Aging have a good things inside it, not only bad things. We have knowledge, we have life experience, which is something that is great. So we are not anti. Uh, the answer is yes. In the Aviv clinic, when you are coming, not as part of a clinical study, because in a clinical study, you have only one intervention. But if you are coming with a biological wish of improving your brain performance, for example, then we will use everything we know based on your biology and based on the science that we have today in order to get the maximum for you. And again, that's a whole topic. What can we use? We have seen your DNA. We know which kind of food is suitable based on your DNA. We know what type of exercise is best for you based on cardiopulmonary exercise testing. We know what type of cognitive you should do based on computerized cognitive testing and based on doing MRI of your brain and functional MRI and DTI and all of this. So two separate things. If we are doing a clinical study, one intervention. If you are sitting in front of me as a patient, my job is to bring for you everything in my hand 
known today based on scientific research that can help you. Yeah, that's it's uh, really promising and uh, be really interested to see how people um, benefit over the long term. I, I wanted to ask about risks. And I, I like I said, I really appreciate how you've talked in the past about, you know, you differentiate between the, doing this in a medical facility with a trained physician versus, you know, products that are, are not being um, used in accordance with, you know, very specific protocols um, overseen by someone who's who's trained. But I'm curious, you know, given that this is um, this is such a, a, a new treatment um, for various conditions and, and possibly even um, related to optimal health. Um, do, do we know like what levels of risk there might be over the long term with with uh, usage? I mean, I, I presume it hasn't been studied longitudinally. Right. So like if people are are doing this um, for two hours, two hour sessions on a very regular basis over uh, however many years or maybe even decades into the future. Do we know? I mean, do you, have we ruled out that there might be um, some some downsides in, in the long term to, to doing this? Let, let's start with the side effect that can happen along the treatment and then move forward. Uh, the, the side effects can be related, first of all, to the equipment. If you are not using the appropriate equipment with the quality assurance needed to make sure that you indeed receive the oxygen, the pressure that you need to get, and you're using some pump, that pump air inside with the oil, with the CO2, with the, all of this CO2 that go inside, you may have toxicity related to that. Okay, so first of all, you need a medical grade with a good quality assurance equipment before you even dare to get into something. Okay, this is, this is one thing. The second thing, there are some contraindications for the treatment. For example, several problems in the ears that are incompatible with pressure. Certain lung pathologies that are incompatible with the pressure. For example, certain brain pathologies that are also incompatible. If somebody have an active epileptic locus in the brain, we can activate that while we are giving the treatment. So this is another contraindication. Okay, so... So you have to be evaluated to see that you are fit to die. Let's call it like this, okay? It's a fitness to die. You have to make sure that this person is eligible and can go through the treatment safely. That's with respect to that. Regarding your question on the long-term effect, we know the long-term effect because currently hyperbaric oxygen therapy is not being used only for diving. It's being used for non-healing wounds, for example, diabetic wounds. It's known to be used for people who have post-radiation injury because of cancer. So we know the long-term safety. It's safe on the long-term. Actually, when you're finishing the treatment, you don't have remnant of the treatment. We know clearly that it doesn't cause any cancer growth or initiation of cancer process because we are treating cancer patients who have post-radiation injury. Okay, so it does not cause cancer. My, some may claim that they have some anti-cancer effect. It might be possible, that, that, but that wasn't evaluated yet in appropriate ways, so we cannot claim that. 
So we know that the long-term safety is good. There are also some eye pathology that are, that are incompatible for the pressure and, and that can cause. So if you are in a good hands with a good evaluation before making decision to take you in, and if your equipment is well monitored, and if when you're going into the chamber, you have a medical team with you inside that can handle some of the side effects, for example, glucose that is going down or anything that may happen inside, then the treatment is safe. However, if you are buying a tube or buying a sack full of air going inside without appropriate evaluation, you may cause damage to your health. So we don't need to play with our health. We need to do it appropriately. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you, Dr. Fradi. I... Um... I have two more questions. I really appreciate the time that you're spending. I think it's running a little bit longer than um, we talked about at the outset. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Two questions I can take. Two questions. I'll keep it to that. I'm really curious to ask about um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You know, since it imposes this oxidative stress on our cells, is it right to think of this therapy as an example of the mild beneficial stresses that are good for us, um, such as exercise or intermittent fasting? Is this an example of a hormetic stressor or would you put it in a different category? Could people get some of these benefits? We talk about like BDNF uh, increases being linked to hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Are, Are those... Are those increases in BDNF comparable to the increases that someone could get from frequent exercise, or is it just like another level such that it's a different category of uh, something we're talking about? So the word hormesis is absolutely, absolutely suitable for here. I don't know if the audience understand what hormesis is, but hormesis means that you actually trigger a biological cascade by doing something, okay? And and it means that if you're giving something that in high dose can be toxic, in lower dose you may have the totally opposite effect. For example, you spoke about exercise. If you will continue running all day and all night, probably you will break your legs and, and die because of that. But if you are doing that intermittently, then you are triggering BDNF, you're triggering HIF, you're triggering a lot of things that that are beneficial when, and we know that they're beneficial when we are doing exercise. The same with intermittent fasting. If you will not eat at all, surprise, surprise, you will die. But if you are doing that intermittently, you are triggering a lot of things, a lot of biological metabolical scares that you may benefit from if you are doing that in control way. So the basic principle holds also for the hyperbaric, and that's the fluctuation that we generate. And that's one of the reasons why we are giving one session per day and not all day long. And that's the reason why we are giving five sessions per week and not seven sessions per week. And so the hormesis and the trigger that you initiate that include BDNF and VGF and HIF and a lot of other things, are being done in addition to one thing, which is improve oxygenation of the tissue. So on one hand, you are triggering a whole biological cascade 
but you are giving the good the good length that enable these processes to grow and get the beneficial from them. So this is a combination of hormesis and additional better oxygenation and metabolism of the tissue. Great. So so I take it that the answer, one answer to my question would be that um, because of that additional effect that hyperbaric oxygen therapy is taking it to another level that exercise could not get you the same levels of benefits um, when it comes to things like BDNF. Is, is that, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding or hearing you right. You get it. You get it right. And by the way, if you will go to the Aviv clinic, uh, you will also be instructed how to use, not as part of clinical study. If I'm sitting with you as my patient, I will recommend to you to do the intermittent fasting and do the exercise based on a predefined protocol that is suitable for your specific biology. Okay, intriguing. So it's a whole program. It's not only the chamber. Right. It's a sort of like a one piece of the the overall optimal health, or if you have a condition, um, you know, a, a protocol for treating that that condition. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Last question, as promised. Uh, I I, uh, I want to ask about uptake with you know people using. You mentioned the the clinic, uh, the Aviv clinic in Florida. Uh, I've I've read about your plans to roll out many of these clinics. Whenever we're talking about longevity, uh, biological aging, there is often the um, concern. I think uh, rightly brought up about who's going to benefit. Is it only going to be the people who have the the most resources to pay? Um, for uh, the the most advanced treatments that um, could potentially lead to benefits. Um, so you know, right now I think that this is a, a fairly expensive thing uh, for people to do. What do you think it'll take for the price point to come down to make this more accessible to more people in the future? That's that's always how it starts. You know, for example, if I want to recall the first cellular phone that my father had, he was the first one in my city who had a cellular phone. It was a bag, okay? And and the cost of it, you wouldn't imagine what the cost of it was. And he was the only one who had a cellular phone, you know, going with this bag, carrying it from one place to the other. And look, look what happened today. More than that, you know, stills, in the development countries, the number one killer is, is infectious disease, is diarrhea of children, okay? So, so unfortunately, it's not, it's not the same medicine for all. And in, if you want to save more life, then you should bring vaccination to the development countries, okay? And, and that's how life is, but that's also how it starts. We are starting, you can look at the Aviv clinic as, as the lighthouse that marks the way, okay, that bring the best medicine known and valuable today per individual, not taking the average as a target, but rather trying to enhance to the maximum the biology of a certain patient. So, of course, today not everybody can afford it, but I think it's also prioritize how much you want to invest in your health as compared to you know, going traveling around the world. So of course it's not accessible for all, but that's how it starts. 
And once you have this lighthouse that marks the way, and still the equipment is very expensive, and building such an infrastructure is extremely extensive, so the treatment will be expensive. But that's how it starts, and that's how it starts. And once we are starting with that, many will follow, and once more clinics are being built, and more clinics are going to be built of a VIP clinic around the U.S., it will be more accessible to more people. Excellent. I think that's a great point to end on, Dr. Efrati. Congratulations on the work that you're doing. Sorry, again, the conversation ran a little bit long. Thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about your important and innovative research. I find it incredibly promising, and I will certainly be looking forward to continuing to follow your work. Great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the talk and all the best. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time. <laughs>